0: when you look around this room, you see names on these systems. Michael Douglas, Ferrari, Her Majesty. So, I mean, when I saw those, I was like, oh, I'm in the right spot here. Like (laughs) if if they're making vinegar for the queen of England, this is right where I want to be. And I tell you, when you put a 50 year balsamic over vanilla gelato, it'll change your life.
1: It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. A long time ago, I put a bucket list together, and my bucket list was it had a one generalization in it. It was that eat at a lot of great restaurants, <laughs> and and I've succeeded. I'm sure there's plenty of them I haven't tried yet, but one I just recently revisited. It was a great restaurant, a great dining experience, and I thought, man, it's time for us on Farm to Table Talk to get back to a chef that is making all this magic happen and i'm happy to welcome Deneb williams and Deneb has a laura restaurant in sacramento daneb welcome to farm to table talk thanks for having me i appreciate the time so daneb describe for people that weren't there what you're doing with your restaurant what what's the um what's the image that you're going for what's the character personality uh style what are you looking for when you when you created Alora? Well, Alora
0: was the culmination of you know uh, a lifetime worth of work. Um, I've been in the restaurant business uh, since I was 12 years old. Um, uh, worked my way up through the ranks. Um, I've had several executive chef positions over the last 25 years, the most recently was at the firehouse in old Sacramento, Um, that job actually brought me to Sacramento. Um, And I spent almost 10 years there. And it really helped me develop uh, an identity here in Sacramento, you know, uh, chefs who move to new towns have to create a following, you have to create uh, an identity for yourself and your cuisine. and, And you have to learn cuisine of wherever you're cooking i've been a chef in colorado and oregon and washington and wyoming and every one of those places is different and and not only different places but different times um you know spanning some decades food evolves so it was it was a great opportunity for me to uh learn a lot about sacramento and the first thing that i learned about sacramento was that this is the most amazing place in the world, in my opinion, um, for produce. Uh, we are literally surrounded by every type of farm that you can imagine. And, and, and we have access to not only the freshest produce, but the longest growing seasons. You know, when you're a chef in Colorado, I worked with a lot of farmers' cooperatives and farm to table uh, type. Uh, arrangements with different uh, local farmers. But, you know, your growing season is so short that tomatoes, corn, they come and go in the blink of an eye. Whereas in Sacramento, you have this amazingly long season. So my wife uh, has been a lifelong restaurateur as well. Her father was a chef. um, And she spent seven years at uh, Ella with the Sullen family. And, you know, when we started talking about what we wanted to do, um, we we were really infatuated with with Italy. We, we've always been kind of italophiles. We 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 love the culture, we love the food, um, we love the people. Um, and my wife is a advanced sommelier. She's one step away from being a master somm. And for those of you who don't know what that means. Um, there's four levels to this certification, um, and there's no curriculum, there's no course. You have to study on your own, but it can literally be uh, you're tested on everything there is in the world of wine. Um, she's one of three advanced sommeliers in the city of Sacramento. Um, she's the only woman, and she's also a, uh, a certified uh, uh, Italian wine scholar. So, when we started kicking around restaurant ideas and restaurant concepts, she was passionate about a concept that featured Italian wine. And I'll be honest, at first I said, You're crazy. We can't do that. That's, that's suicide. Well, For wait a minute. I, got,
1: I got to stop you right there. So, you started with the wine before you, you, and the wine led you to the food rather than the other way around.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I said to my wife Elizabeth Rose, you know, you're crazy that suicide we're 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 a stone's throw from some of the greatest vineyards in the world, Napa and Sonoma. And even here in the foothills, they're growing amazing wines. And you know, she stuck to her gun. She said, This is what I want to do. This is going to set us apart. Now, I have spent a lot of years studying. Um Mediterranean food. I, I was I was a, a, uh, an assistant at a restaurant in the early 90s called the Adriatica in, in Seattle, where I really kind of cut my teeth on Italian and Greek food. But by no means am I an Italian chef. I'm not Italian by heritage. Uh, I, I certainly wasn't trained in Italian cuisine, mostly French uh, and Austrian was was my background. Um, because those are the chefs that I worked under growing up. Um, But, you know, I really trusted my wife's intuition. I trusted that she knew what she was talking about. And I knew that her passion for wine would be something that no one else in Sacramento or this region really has, is a female advanced sommelier curating and selling their own wine list. So I went to work, we did some traveling, Uh, we started with some very basic ideas, fresh pasta. And one of the things that we quickly realized was for me, Italy is all about seafood. I grew up on a small Island in the San Juans called Friday Harbor, Washington or San Juan Island. It's, it's about a quarter mile from the Canadian border. These islands are kind of tucked up behind Vancouver Island um, right at the beginning of the inside passion pasche- passage to, to Southeast Alaska. Um, so growing up, it was all about seafood and I started working in restaurants when I was 12. So I would go down to the, to the docks with my chefs and we would buy crab and spot prawns and, um, and salmon and halibut r- right off the docks from the fishermen. And, um, one of my favorite oyster farms in the world, Westcott Bay is on my home island and. When I was a boy, we would go out to the to the shellfish farm, and uh, they would harvest the oysters and and leave them in this big trough uh, right by the ocean that had a pump running salt water over them. And there was a little wooden box, and it was all the honor system: take a dozen oysters, leave leave a couple bucks in the box. Now Westcott Bay has come a long way in the last forty years. Uh, I'd like to think I have as well. Um, but if you're ever in San Juan Island, go visit Westcott Bay. It's an amazing experience. You can still sit. Right on the ocean, uh, shuck oysters on picnic tables, and and you know now they've got a little uh, cafe that brings you wine and and your own oyster glove and your own oyster knife, and but you can still kind of have that same experience. Anyway, uh, seafood was just ingrained in me. Um, I went to high school on the Big Island of Hawaii, uh, learned a lot about uh, you know pan asian fusion food you know at the time uh uh roy yamaguchi was the, one of the bigger chefs in the world in the late 80s early 90s and obviously hawaii was all about that type of you know japanese and chinese fusion so seafood for me then moving to seattle seattle's a great seafood town a great fish town so when we were putting all these ideas and all these experiences together uh alora literally has no English translation, the word Allora. Um, it's a phrase that when you're in Italy, people will start a sentence with, Allora, and then they'll explain to you what they're doing. Or they will offer you something and say, Allora. And it kind of means, here you go, or here's what's next. It, it's it's kind of a, a, a pause between... Uh, Sentences. It's a pause between ideas, and for us, moving from two iconic Sacramento restaurants, Ella and the Firehouse, to our own restaurant is is to say the very least, it's risky. To say the very least, it's 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 a uh, you put all put all your chips in the center of the table, and for us, that was our Allura moment. That was our moment where we realized that this was our concept it was a lot of ah italian wine fresh pasta seafood and that's where we started
1: wow that's that's incredible now a couple things occurred to me as you're as you're speaking so if you start with building kind of the menu and what you're going to stand for and the you know the environment is is uh, is just really, really nice on the patio and and inside, and you can just uh, all about the restaurant feels feels great. But I want to go back to also being surrounded with the produce because you're saying that you know I, it makes sense to me that you were in San Juan Island and Seattle and how much important the seafood was. But let's go back and talk a little bit about the fact that the produce being available here um, as as much as it as it is. So when you decide you're going to open a shop, you're going to have your restaurant here. Uh, how would you start shopping for talent, if you will, as far as those that are able to uh, produce uh, what you need and get you all the ingredients that meet your standards to be, um, I, you know, from here in the area?
0: Well, I mean, a 10-year uh, run at the firehouse. Oh, okay, sure. Amazingly. I mean, I, I built all my contacts um you know uh, and and really you know the contacts find you if you are doing the kind of food that we're doing farmers are really discovering uh in the last decade that that selling directly to the restaurants or you know so the more you could do that and, and i have to say produce express is an amazing resource i've never seen in any town anywhere a produce company, and this started with Jim Mills. I, I don't know if you know Jim, but but he he and I worked together. He retired a few years ago, and now Scott Rose. Uh, they take ownership in being the liaison between the farmers and the and the, the chefs. And I will probably send Scott two or three texts a week. Hey, how much longer are we going to have apricots? When do the peaches start? Hey, when can I expect uh persimmons? Hey, how much longer am I going to have delta pears? And I mean these and and uh, you know, when you think about food in Sacramento, for me, my menus always start with produce. So I don't think about protein, I don't think about stylizing the dish, I don't even think about the starches. I always start with produce. So if I'm designing a menu right now, which I am, all of my thoughts are about fall squash, brassicas, alliums, all different types of uh, great leafy vegetables, uh, persimmons, pomegranates, pears, um, and then obviously citrus is a huge part of what we do here as we go into wintertime, um, mushrooms. You know, uh, I don't know how, how great the local mushrooms are going to be this year because of so many wildfires, um, and so little rain, but, you know, normally in a, in a cycle this time of year, I, I fall in love with chanterelle mushrooms again. I fall in love with hedgehogs and, and black trumpets and hen of the woods. Uh, and so, you know, for me, I also extend my thoughts to Italy, um, you know, uh, I, I, I love truffles and we sell about a pound of truffles every three or four days at Alora. And so one of the things that I love to do to interact with my guests is I go out to the table and I shave truffles tableside. side. Um, and right now we're finishing up with the black summer truffles. Uh, we're getting ready to go into the most prized truffle of the year, which is the Alba. Uh, Piedmontese white truffle. And then we're going to go into the Burgundian. Uh, they call them Burgundian, but they're grown all throughout the south of France and Italy, um, all the way down to Umbria, uh, the, the winter black truffle, which is which is my personal favorite because um, not only is it a little bit more affordable than the white truffle, but I just love the aroma. I love the characteristics and I love how, how I can play off of those perfume notes with other things it, the, the truffles love porcini mushrooms, they love, uh, you know, different things like our carne cruda, or, you know, one of the simplest dishes on our menu at Alora is risotto with uh, Parmesan, Parmesan, Parmesan. So we take the rinds of two year aged Parmesan Reggiano, and we make a broth with the rinds. And that's what we cook the rice in, and then we, as we're cooking the rice to finish it, we finish it with uh, grated Parmesan, and then we make a Parmesan espuma or foam, and then a Parmesan tuile. So actually, it probably should be four Parmesan's on the on the title, um, but that might be a little uh, <laughs> a little much. But truffles with that dish, or truffles with the the tagine which is also one of our specialties at Allora. Taierin is a Piedmontese style uh, tagliolini that's made with uh, uh, 90 grams of egg yolks per kilo of flour. And we take it one step further. We make it with duck eggs from Laughing Duck Farms. So uh, Laughing Duck Farms is one of our farm partners. We buy uh, rabbits, uh, duck eggs, goat's milk, all different types of animal uh, products from them. So this taillardine is made with duck eggs. So naturally I played on that duck element and I did duck confit, confit mushrooms, porcini cream, and then a tartufata gremolata over the top. And then if you shave truffles on that one, I mean, lights out. It's, it's, it's one of, uh, and and I never ever say this about food that I make, but it's, it's, it's as perfect a dish as, as as I've probably ever made just because um, the flavor profiles work so well together. There's nothing about it that I would change.
1: Uh, you know, I, I had your Parmesan, Parmesan, Parmesan risotto, and it was, it was wonderful. I didn't get truffles on it. I think that's I got to come back and add the truffles now.
0: Yeah, especially but, uh, when the Alba whites happen. I mean, it's... Whew. It'll it'll light up the whole room. I mean, you can smell them <laughs> from five feet away.
1: You know, so, a couple of quick couple of quick things I want to reference. You yeah, know, yeah. we have we have listeners all over the world that listen to farm to farm to table talk. I have, a, I have a feeling that if you had to go drop down somewhere else, would you take a similar approach to try to identify what's your menu? I mean, we're lucky to have you right here in Sacramento, but I suspect that you would. Uh, if you were living in some other city anywhere in the world that you would probably go at your menu and everything in the similar way of capitalizing what's available to you too
0: there's really no other way and and listen farm to table has been uh popularized it, it has been uh, brought into the the public uh, mindset but this is the way we've always cooked I think if you were to go talk to Patrick Mulvaney or or Brad Chechi or, or or Oliver or Billy or any of the chefs in town here, they would all tell you the same thing. We, we we grew up cooking with what's in season. When I was a kid in Friday Harbor, Friday Harbor is a fishing and farming community, and when you're on an island, that's you know a two hour ferry ride to the to the mainland and another two hours to the nearest big city you definitely cook with what's available on the island. And we, we constantly were working with what the farmers were bringing us out of the fields right then and there. So this is something I've done since a very, very early age. Um, when I was in Wyoming, Uh, Produce is hard to find out there. There's not a lot of things that are grown, but I worked with local ostrich ranchers. I worked with local cattle ranchers. I worked with local chicken farmers. I I did everything in my power to bring the local flair to the menu. And, you know, in Colorado, even more so, um, I worked with uh, several different um, farm cooperatives and, and kind of how they were doing it at the time there was... Uh, 30 farms would load all their stuff onto a box truck and the box truck would drive around to the restaurants mm. and the box truck would open up the back door and you just walked in and was like, I'll have that. I'll have that. I'll have that. I'll have that. And then that's what drove the menu for that weekend. Um, you know uh, so this is nothing new. This is, this is nothing new, but, but, you know, now that it's part of the the consciousness of, of the dining population. Uh, It's fun because I think people appreciate what chefs have been doing even more so now. And and the amount of thought and the amount of work that goes in to that plate that you get and the seasonality. and, And when you come to my restaurant in the spring and It's all about English peas and fava beans and and Delta asparagus and beautiful apricots. And and then if you come in the fall, it's almost like a completely different experience culinarily, different flavor profiles, different levels of acid, different colors, you know, color is like in the summertime you got the bright reds from the bell peppers and the tomatoes. And, you know, we're, we were probably working with six or seven different heirloom tomatoes right now. And that's six or seven of my favorites out of 40 that are available. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I think that, that it's just been part of my, my life.
1: But you know what? One thing that re, reminds me, you've got all of this bounty, you take advantage of looking, and, and it's seasonal, and it's local, but you also know when you have to go far afield. Like, you'll go for truffles, or you'll go for a Reggiano Parmigiano, and you literally have uh, gone to Italy recently, and and you were, what were you doing over there? Were you looking, getting for ideas, or getting, uh, getting some products to be able to bring back? <coughs> Well, you know, we went to
0: Italy, I don't know, uh, mid-August with a very specific intent. Um, We needed a new truffle contact. We wanted to source a small production, Parmesan Reggiano, that wasn't imported, that no one else had. And I wanted to explore balsamic vinegar and Modena a little bit more. Um, And then obviously, uh, on the other side of the coin, my wife had a dozen or so uh winemakers she wanted to visit. Um we wanted to really uh visit again Barolo, Barbaresco, uh see what's happening in the vineyards with climate change, see how the winemakers and 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 make no mistake, all of these winemakers are farmers first. So this is farm to table. And and being in the vineyard talking with the winemaker who is the farmer about how their crops are, how their yields are, how their wines are changing, how climate change is affecting them. Uh, you know, they are also in a in a pretty sick bad drought in Italy right now. Um, and that's going to affect a lot of the decisions that I make moving forward. You know, this may not be a good year for mushrooms or truffles um, because of the drought. So we may have to pivot our, our menu ideas based upon climate change. Um, so when we were in Italy, we were there for six days this time, and it was a whirlwind. We, we traveled from Modena to Osti to uh, Emilia-Romagna, and all the way up to Valadeosta. Um, and we drove about 1200 miles in five days um, with bookended flights of 24 hours of traveling and with a very specific purpose and it was bringing amazing products back to Elora. Um, I just got in the mail uh, yesterday um, my vinegar first vinegar shipment from Achataya del Cristo, which is a small production uh, balsamic vinegar maker in Modena. And to be in their aging room and to see these barrels, and they work in kind of like a Solera. I don't know, Have you ever been to a balsamic vinegar making? I have not. So it, this was a lot of new information for me, too. Um you know, they they every year they make the vinegar, they, they grow the grapes on property, they make the vinegar, and then they feed the mother barrels with this fermented, you know, grape juice. Um, and then from there, after uh, you know, a certain amount of time, they start feeding these Solaris barrels that get smaller and smaller and smaller. And so when you walk up in this room, you see all of these racks, seven barrels big barrel and six smaller barrels all the way down. The smallest barrel holds 10 liters. And the big barrel, mark that as five years. And then the next one is six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. So at 12 years, when the vinegar hits that barrel, and basically what they do is they top off whatever has evaporated from the smaller barrels with the next barrel and so on and so on and so on. So all of the barrels stay full. And so every year they have the new juice and the new vinegar introduced, but it's, it's blended with the much older, uh, vinegar. And so when you look around this room, you see names on these systems. Um, Michael Douglas, um, Ferrari, Her Majesty. So, I mean, when I saw those, I was like, oh, I'm in the right spot here. Like, (laughs) if if they're making vinegar for the Queen of England, this is right where I want to be. So, um, you know, you can essentially uh, uh, buy your own setup, let them manage it for you. And then every year out of your little 10 liter, you get a liter of your own balsamic vinegar. And then they don't, you don't, but it's a 12 year plan before you get a single drop. But then you have, but then you have a 13 year vinegar and a 14 year vinegar and a 20 year vinegar, so on and so forth, because it keeps aging in that smallest barrel. So, uh, we just got our first shipment. Um, I'm so excited. Um, they age in seven different woods. Um, the two that I liked the best were the cherry and the juniper woods. Very different, amazingly different characteristic to this vinegar, um, lots of different culinary applications to cherry versus juniper. So what I purchased was 12-year in cherry and juniper, 25-year uh, in cherry and juniper. And then I bought myself one bottle of 50-year-old balsamic uh, because I turned 50 this year. So I thought, Ugh. why not treat myself? Oh. But that's going to be something that I'm going to share with my guests at Alora. And I tell you, when you put a 50-year balsamic over vanilla gelato, it'll change your life. It, it, it's it's unlike anything you've ever had. And we're, we're putting together a beet and burrata salad right now, utilizing the 25 year old juniper vinegar. And so I'm gonna have all of these different menu items featuring this vinegar. And what's, what's so important to me is the story, the heritage, uh, the, the, the person who is giving us this tour is a fourth generation vinegar maker. The, the thing that I love about Italy is the, the, the generational knowledge that they pass down. Everywhere you go, everyone you talk to, it is a family business. Every vineyard, every cheese shop, every and And kids grow up, they go off to college or university And and then a lot of them come home to help run the family business generation after generation. And all of that knowledge gets passed down. And that's something we don't really have in the United States. And I guess uh, nostalgically, I I feel drawn to that. Um, So we just got our first shipment of vinegar. I've got, I've got a few wheels of, I I don't mean to, you know, uh, you have any questions about that?
1: Oh, well, no. I mean, I, I love this story, but, I, I find myself thinking a couple of things. One is I'm wondering if we're going to start have generations of it because we're. It's more and more an alternative for people to come back and farm on a smaller scale. We've gone through about three or four decades of uh, people needing to be large scale um, farming operations to survive, and we're starting to see. Uh, I think maybe a generational look at more specialized farming of people that are doing local people that are bringing in some of these heritage breeds of livestock that they're producing and, uh, you know, pasture raised, this and that. And it's quite a bit more than, than we've had for the last 40, 50 years. So, so maybe we'll reestablish some of those traditions that you, that you see in Italy. Um, I hope you're right. Yeah, Yeah, I
0: hope you're right. I think that the United States is, an an adolescent country we're very restless we're very mobile whereas italy is a far more uh, established mature society that that understands they have a better sense of place um i think that we need to protect our small farmers i think you know not to get too political but our 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 system of farming in this country has been broken for so long um Neonectanoid, Monsanto, dead soil, nitrate fertilizers, these things of the macro farm have destroyed so much of our terroir. We have to get back to basics. We need, monoculture has to go. We have to get back into biodynamic farming. We have to get back into uh, family run Farms that are protected by our society. We can't allow Monsanto to come in and sue a, a farmer because a seed blew across the way, and they're and they're growing their unlicensed, you know, crop on a uh, organ, you know, an organic. And and the whole organic thing has got to be simplified too. It's too expensive to be. Uh, certified as an organic farmer. There's, there's thousands of amazing farmers who are doing biodynamics, who are doing all of the right things, spraying no uh, neonectinoid, I don't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, poisons, but they're not certified organic because it's just too expensive. That's obscene. That, that's, a, that's an affront to what the organic label was supposed to be about, which is informing the consumer that this was a different type of farming. This was a different type of food. Um, So, you know, if you look at the EU and you look at some of the ways that they have protected their their local artisanal quality products, how they have banned poisons like Roundup, how they don't allow or very limited allowance for GMO crops. Um, I think we have a path forward. I really do. And we just have to get the the big monoculture companies out of the way, because that's the biggest threat to having the future that I think we want, that I definitely want for our farming communities and subsequently for our local produce uh production that you know make no mistake you know uh, sacramento uh makes produce for more than just sacramento we yeah. feed we feed the world you know in, yeah. in a lot of ways and and so you know that's that's my soapbox on that um so i, I hope that you're right i hope that we see generational farming become a thing
1: well, there's so much to ask you about, and and we're gonna to have to have another conversation to pull in the Parmigiano. And I wanted I want to go out and experience truffles sometime too. Like where they come from, <laughs> you know. Those those are all sound like really really interesting ventures. But one thing I want to circle back on, you know, you've got such good stories here and where you're sourcing and everything. The one thing that struck me is you have a you know your beautiful restaurant and the menu. But you don't really have uh, too much identity for an individual farm. Uh, and you, you know, at least the night that I was there, there was a great description of what you had. It didn't, it didn't say the source of it on the, on the menu. Uh, I assume that's a conscious decision on your part that, that you weren't identifying the farm of the source of the, of the produce that was used.
0: Well, you know, my menu is very clean. It's very modern. I don't like to over describe things. So, for example, risotto, parmesan, parmesan, parmesan.
1: Right.
0: You right. know, um, you know, uh, carne cruda, tartufata, cured egg, capers. It, it, because I want something to be left to the imagination. And mm. you know, I, I also think that part of the the theater of restaurants is the mystery, and it, obviously, if someone has a question about where a product is sourced, my staff is very very knowledgeable. You know, and a lot of times, you know, the farms change. Um, you know, we just you know at the end of the season, Twin Peaks ended their peaches, and we moved off to a, to another farm that was a little bit less local. Um, so I try and keep a list in the in the kitchen of here are the big picture local farms that we're using. But um, I think for the most part, that's an opportunity for my wait staff, for my front of house staff to interact with the guests. I have some of the most well trained service staff anywhere. They are incredibly knowledgeable about the wine, incredibly knowledgeable about all of the products and we go through extensive training to keep them informed. So, um, you know, and then we also uh, on our website, we do farm partners and we do different links to different places that we share with. Um, But when people come into Elora, I really just want them to relax. I want them to forget about the world and, and, and just enjoy.
1: Well, no, I, uh, I wasn't being critical at all because it, it just is a choice because this, uh, you know some do, they identify certain you know restaurants, or I mean farms in particular, and some some don't. And I think that you've got. Uh, I asked some questions of your of your team, and they all had great answers, and so they're they're well trained in that in that whole area as well. But one thing also makes me think we seem to we're heading into a time where there's going to be more and more about regenerative farming. Particularly as it relates to climate change, I'm wondering if if that has any implications for you as a restaurant operator when there's uh, more concerns about whether whether the food is also produced regeneratively.
0: Um, You know, absolutely, sustainability is a huge part of why I buy local as much as possible, and when I. You know when I shop for things uh, internationally, you know I like to go. Like I went and visited Tartuflange oh. in Piedmonte, and I wanted to talk with the owners about sustainability and and how they're planting trees to grow truffles and how they're inoculating those trees with truffle spores and understanding the environmental impacts of truffle harvesting and understanding the carbon footprint of that whole process, you know, uh, the Parmesan Reggiano that I'm gonna be bringing in, they grow the barley and the the wheat to feed the cattle that they raise to make the cheese in the same location. And so, yeah, climate change, I think several things are gonna happen. One is what we thought we knew about seasonality is gonna change. Growing seasons are gonna change growing locations are going to change and availability is going to change so it's really crucial as a chef to be uh nimble we have to be able to change quickly and i i I adapt our menu philosophy quickly um and the other thing that's going to probably happen with climate change is prices are going to go up uh we've seen massive inflation in the cost of goods over the last six months. Sometimes in in many products that I have on the menu, prices have literally doubled. Now my menu prices have not doubled. So how do you as a business owner account for doubling prices in not one or two, but hundreds of menu uh, uh, items that you purchase without changing your menu prices egregiously. So we have to be creative and we have to think um, more sustainably and we have to be careful with portion control. I mean, I could go on and on for another hour about just the strategy of purchasing and menu design with with the impact of uh, global climate change and environmental change due to COVID.
1: Well, I wish we could go on for another hour, but we need to wrap up. One thing I'm thinking, though, we didn't talk much about the proteins that you select. We did a little bit on the fish, but what what about the, the livestock of, of you know, beef, pork, uh, lamb, rabbit, what have you? Uh, are you able to source what you need locally uh, that are producing the kind of livestock you want in the way that you want them raised?
0: You know, I think we're, we're not a big uh, animal protein restaurant, but you just, you just hit a couple things that we do serve and absolutely, you know, our rabbits come from laughing duck farms and we literally pick up the phone and we say we'd like six rabbits and they go out and they slaughter six rabbits for us. Um, you know, uh, pork, you know, we've got a couple of different really great, I mean, Nyman ranch has been the gold standard for pork in this area for, for a long, long time. But I also work with Beeler's. um, uh, out of, and Compart rock is, you know, so it's a tricky, tricky thing. And I think the the, I get this question a lot. Where is your beef raised? Well, that is the most difficult question to answer because yes, these cows are all raised in individual fields. They're all grass fed, but then they're all sold at auction and then they're fattened, and slaughtered in one. So imagine every farm in Northern California and Southern Oregon and Nevada being funneled, thousands of small ranchers, thousands being funneled into this one system that then produces an hourglass shape of product out to the populace. Well, in many, many regards for the vast majority, I'm sure it's in the 90th percentile of the beef there's no accurate way to really know where that cow came from. Now what you can do is you can say, I'm working with a company who who has practices for bovine husbandry, uh, uh, you know uh, minimal use of, of antibiotics and growth hormones and good sustainable feed and those kinds of things. But my personal opinion on beef, is I don't eat very much of it and I don't cook very much of it because it is the least sustainable thing on the planet. And we need to, we need to produce and eat less of it. Um, Seafood arguably is also an equally dangerous fraught with uh, issues as far as its sourcing and sustainability. Um, Once again, I could probably go on for an hour about how I source my seafood and the relationships, you know, one of my favorite things on our menu is our black cod, because I know Anthony, he catches the fish himself and he brings it right to the restaurant. And those are the relationships that I love when Anthony rolls up into my parking lot and I'm pulling fish out of his cooler that are still rigor mortis. And they were literally caught the day before or that morning. That is the chain of supply that I am after for everything on my menu. So whether it's rabbits or black cod or farm to table produce, I want as, as few people in between me and the people who grow it or catch it as possible.
1: I think that's a great attitude. Deneb, this has gone too fast. There's so much we could talk about, but I really want to appreciate you for being on Farmer Table Talk. And I wonder if you could remind people to check out where you're, how they find you online so that they can some, maybe sometime visit you someday, but keep track of what you're doing at Allura.
0: Well, um, you know, my Instagram handle is chef underscore Deneb. So that's an easy one right there. Uh, You you can follow, I I post everything that I'm doing on Instagram. Um, AloraSacramento.com is our website. Um, You know, Alora is a pre-fee dining experience. Uh, We have three courses, four courses or five courses starting at $95 a person. We do an automatic uh, service fee of 23% um we share that service fee with our back of the house i think our our kitchen crew is is some of if not the best compensated cooks in the city um we're really really proud of that we've got amazing staff by no means is the culinary program uh, at alora just myself uh, i work with with my chef de cuisine lee hinton um my sous chef rob saccato and um i you know my culinary consultant um uh, uh, Kendall, uh, we 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 work together as a team. We have creative meetings two or three times a week, um, and we really focus on all of these issues at every one of those meetings.
1: Well, listen, it's been great. I'm going to be back, and thanks for joining us on Farm to Table Talk.
0: I'd love to come back anytime.
1: You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.